If you are in Sydney or Melbourne, listen up because we have some exciting news for you. Listen. Yeah, listen. Saturday, July. (laughs) Melbourne, we are doing Do Go On The Quiz Show live one night only or one afternoon only. Part of the Replay Festival at Comedy Republic on Saturday, July 6th at 3pm. This is 2024. And then the next weekend in Sydney, we are going up for a live Do Go On podcast at the fabulous Ritz Cinema on Saturday, July 13th at 3pm. Also 2024. Yeah, 2024. Yeah. Listen. 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 And get tickets. Buy tickets. Tickets at dogoonpod.com. Come. Let's do it. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another episode of Do Go On. My name is Dave Warnicke, and as always, I'm here with Jess Perkins and Matt Stewart. Hello. Hey, Dave. Hey, Jess. And hey, Dave, once again. Hello. Two for Dave. Well, I'm going to say hello, Dave. Hello, Matt. Hello, Matt again. (laughs) (laughs) That's very nice. And I'm going to say hello to Matt. Great to be here with you. Oh, yeah. And one for you, Jess. Left me sweating. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Dave, can I ask you a quick question? How does this show work? Well, let me answer that question with a quick answer, and that is often we take it in turns. In fact, every week we take it in turns to report on a topic often suggested by a listener. Go away, do a bit of research on the topic, bring it back and report to the other two, and it is Jess's turn to report on a topic. Matt and I, we don't even know what it's going to be on. So to get us onto that topic, Jess is going to ask us a little question Have you written a question, Jess? Yes, I have. I wrote it just before we started. Fantastic. And my question is, which museum is considered to be the target of the world's biggest art heist? (gasps) Is it? Oh, has it got Stuart in it? Yes. And Gardner? Yes. Oh, I've seen this. Uh, Okay, so you've got Stuart, Gardner and museum. Isabel Stuart Gardner. Isabel, yes. Wow. Maddie Stew, well done. I've, oh, that's so great. I don't know anything about it, but I've put it up <laughs> for the vote before and I wanted, I love a heist and I was so keen to hear about this. This is actually in the the bloody Blocktober vote. Ah, well, no need because we're doing it right now, baby. Fantastic. Getting in slightly early, yeah. (laughs) Is it it possible that this ranked up there and we've accidentally annexed the end of September once again? (laughs) Oh, my God. What are we like? (laughs) Let's call this the start of block. Happy block, everyone. 
Surprise oh block. I haven't had my spray tan ready for block. I'm not prepared. You can't just spring block on me. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Spring block. Spring block. <laughs> for new listeners, uh, block is something we do every year around October time. Each episode's on the biggest, most requested topics of the year. Um, so that's technically starting next week, but really it feels like block has come early this year. Mm. This one has been suggested by quite a few people. Um, Liz Feltner, Josh, McKenna Middlebrook, Rani Tarbury, um, Beth S, Teresa Jacino, Carly Wagner, Holly Garretts, Vera Bukowski, Melissa Ferguson and Brian V. Douglas. So lots of people have suggested this one. Great crop of names there. Incredible, as always. Each of them a piece of art that I'd love to steal. Well, <laughs> that's funny you say that, Matt. That's quite <laughs> relevant to today's story. Well. Yeah. Um, a little bit of backstory to kick things off. So Isabella Stewart was born in New York City on April 14th, 1840. She was the daughter of um, wealthy linen merchant David Stewart and uh, her mother was Adelia Stewart. Beautiful name, Adelia. Adelia, I've never heard that, but I do like it. I'll, it's lovely. It's great hearing about my family history. Yeah. I've also never heard of a, a, a linen tycoon. Loving that. Yeah, Loving yeah, that. he's big in linen. <laughs> I was left out of the will oh. and I'm still furious about it. What did you do it. to get left out of the will? I called him a cock knocker. A cock knocker. That'll cock do it. Knocker. Very offensive in and the he, 1840s. I, was, I thought we were just mucking about. And somehow he didn't like it. Sounds like a real cock knocker to me. I said it just after he'd punched a rooster in the mouth. I mean, yeah. how's he taking offence? Some people, so sensitive. Um, so Isabella grew up in Manhattan where from the age of 5 to 15 she attended a nearby academy for girls where she studied art, music and dance as well as French and Italian. Oh, bueno vista. A well-rounded education. Oh, triple Bueno threat. vista indeed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Buena Vista! <laughs> when she was 16, the family moved to Paris and she was enrolled in a school for American girls. Her classmates included Julia Gardner of the wealthy Gardner family of Boston. They invented gardening. Yeah. Oh, gardening that, tycoon. Stuff was just growing wherever it wanted to. Really they were like, hazard. what if we organise this growing? Yeah, they brought order. And it was absolutely needed. Yeah, and and the world thanks them for that. They worked very cl- closely with uh, Gregory Lawn. Yeah. Um, together they, yeah, they really made some magic happen. Yeah. And Harold Horticulture. <laughs> <laughs> Great dude. Um, upon their return to America a few years later, Julia introduced Isabella to her brother, John or Jack, Lal Gardner Jr. What was his middle name? Lal. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Lal. Hi, I'm L-O-W-E-L-L. Lal. L O W E double L. Lol. Lal. Lol. Have a good Lal. Lal. Let's just we'll just call him Jack. Uh, he was like one of Boston's most eligible bachelors. They got married in Grace Church in April of 1860, and then lived in a house that Isabella's father gave them as a wedding present. Two incredibly wealthy families here. Yeah, I love a house as a present. Oh, yeah. That'd be so good. And you know it's not a shit house either. Well, my dad grew up in a house 
that his grandmother gave to his parents as a wedding present. Whoa. It was a two-bedroom house, two bedrooms, and they raised eight kids in that house. Like they wouldn't sell it or move because the house was a gift and, like, it would be disrespectful to do that. (laughs) So they just raised eight kids in a house far too small. Is your family tycoons? Yes. What industry? Uh, Horse racing, gambling. (laughs) Wow. Sounds like children. Children, yeah. We are tycoons of making babies. (laughs) Um, quite genuinely, so my this is just a fun little tidbit for you. This, as the story goes, as told by Dad, and let's remember Dad's favourite catchphrase is "Never let the truth ruin a good story." So let's take this with a grain of salt. But his grandparents, his grandfather was a real um, he uh, would he would punt a lot on um, on horse races, and so, sometimes he would win a lot. And when he would, his wife would buy property. Um, because she was real smart. And by the time he died, she had like multiple properties, like 20 or more properties she owned. Wow. And she just she would just sell them off. Or give them out and live of off that Or give, give them to her kids. Wild. The money um, dried up pretty quickly in the family. <laughs> what about the, the, the gambling? Are you, are you also a very good gambler? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought so. I've got a very good poker face. You cannot tell when I'm lying. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they, they've gotten married. She's married Jack. This is from the Gardner Museum website. In 1863, the Gardners had a son, uh, John Lowell Gardner III, who they called Jackie, um, but sadly he died of pneumonia at less than two years old. And in 1867, on the advice of her doctor and hoping to rouse her from her depression, Jack Gardner took Isabella to northern Europe and Russia. This was the first of many trips aboard, later including Egypt and the Middle East, Asia um, through the late 1800s. And Isabella reveled in travel, keeping elaborate journals of her visits. She loved it. This is a real tease right now. As we're locked down. Yeah. Great travel tales. They went everywhere, <laughs> let me tell you. Barely had a chance to sit still. They would just travel, travel, travel. <laughs> they said to travel is to live. She would have killed for time to do a puzzle, but there simply was no time. <laughs> Upon her return, she began to establish her reputation as a fashionable, high-spirited socialite. Through their travels, Jack and Isabella developed a keen interest in art and accumulated quite a collection of pieces. Guns? Yeah, pieces. <laughs> <laughs> this is my AK. Uh, got an Uzi here. You know, so I'm sure some people would consider them art. Mm. After inheriting $1.75 million from her father, this is in the late 1800s. Whoa. $1.75 million. She turned her focus to European art and by the late 1890s, they had a world-class collection, primarily of paintings and sculpture, but they also had tapestries, photographs, silver, ceramic, manuscripts, as well as architectural elements such as doors, stained glass, mantelpieces. Like she just collected so much stuff. She's sounding like a hoarder. Yeah. <laughs> All this art and then a pile of doors. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> i got 80 doors in my house. I saw them in hard but rubbish. But they're all beautiful. <laughs> Sadly, Jack passed away quite suddenly in 1898 and Isabella decided to turn her attention to the dream she and Jack had shared, to build a museum to house their extensive collection of art. Fantastic. Museums famously have lots of doors. So yes. Easy. 
She's got that covered. Don't need to pay a tradie to make some doors. Awesome. That's going to save what, like five, ten thousand dollars? Easy. Great. Easily. That's classic, isn't that? Classic museum. It's just a lot of your time is spent opening and closing doors on your way <laughs> yeah, around. Yeah. yeah. Famously closed plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, why the yeah. lines are so long out the front of the Louvre. It's just people yeah. going in and out of doors. It takes forever. <laughs> and heavy doors too. Yeah. So it just, you know, it slows you down. You put your back into it, mate. <laughs> She purchased land in Boston and hired architect Willard T. Sears, incredible name, to build a museum modelled on the Renaissance palaces of Venice. She loved Venice. It was her favourite. And so she's like, all right, we're in Boston. I'm going to build a Venetian palace. Makes sense to me. <laughs> I agree. If there's any city I would liken to Boston, it's Venice. Fantastic. This is from Wikipedia, uh, wikipedia.org. A oh. website Matt got me onto, actually. Fantastic resource. Yeah, it's great. It really is. It's got Bloody information wonderful. on numerous subjects. I've seen yeah. I've seen more than 12 different pages on there. Get out. Yes. Wow. Really, really good stuff. Wow. It says, Gardner was deeply involved in every aspect of the design, though, leading Sears to quip that he was merely the structural engineer making Gardner's design possible. She was very <laughs> hands-on. After the building was ready, Gardner moved into the fourth floor living quarters and spent a year carefully installing her collection according to her personal aesthetic. She was so hands-on. She was like, okay, I'm going to move in, obviously. Every museum has a living quarters for its incredibly (laughs) wealthy owner. And then I'm going to single-handedly hang all the art. I doubt she was, you know, not single-handedly, but... Hanging everything herself. Yeah, she would use both her hands. Yeah, obviously, and probably a hook, maybe a hammer. Mm. I don't know. It depends on how heavy it is. Maybe you could just use command strips, whatever. <laughs> Blue <laughs> tack damage the walls. <laughs> the renter's dream. <laughs> um, the museum was finally opened in 1903, and over the next 20 years, Isabella Stewart Gardner filled her museum with visual and performing artists. She organised concerts, lectures, exhibitions and encouraged artists to make themselves home in the museum. Oh, they also get to move in. Yeah, yeah, there's actually a high-rise apartment building <laughs> above it. It's very convenient. There's a hotel. John Singer Sargent painted in the Gothic Room. Ruth St. De- uh, St. Denise danced her famous piece, The Cobra in the Cloisters. <laughs> Who Incredible. Get the Cobra in the Cloisters. A classic. And Australian opera star Dame Nellie Melba performed from the balcony of the Dutch Room. Dame Nellie Melba. Great name. Incredible name. Well, she's on one of our notes, maybe? On the 100. On the 100, yeah, right. They put Nellie on the 100. She's our Benjamin Franklin. You see how Matt and I don't know that off the top of our <laughs> yeah. head, but Moneybags <laughs> McGee over here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sir John Monash on the other side, so. I'm busy over here making the Nellies. (laughs) Dave, can I have a Nelly? No, but you can have a John Monash. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) you drive a hard bargain. (laughs) He's the guy with the cowboy hat, is he? He's got a moustache. Oh, yeah. Is the freeway named after him? Or is that a I'm thinking of Banjo Patterson. What note's he on? He's on the 10. How do you know all this, Dave? You've seen a $10 (laughs) note now? Yeah, I've seen them all. Who's, who's looking hell? at money anymore? We live in a cash-free society. Been on wikipedia.org oh. forward slash Australian currency. Wow. My homepage, that's how I remember it. <laughs> it's one of 12 pages I've seen too. I'm still furious from when they took Caroline Chisholm off the $5 note, put the queen on Absolute there. You two would be happy about that, you bloody monarchy lovers. When was that? 
fucking 1600s? <laughs> it was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> was, was it the 1600s? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was it uh, Queen Elizabeth yeah. I? <laughs> Uh, um, after Isabella passed away in 1924, she left an endowment of a million dollars. I've also read three million, so somewhere in the millions she's left money um, and outlined stipulations for support of the museum, including that the permanent collection not be significantly altered. Apparently her will was, like, pretty firm on what could be done or couldn't be done more specifically with the museum. Essentially nothing could be permanently changed. Right. You could like move stuff, but probably don't like it. Yeah, everything sort of had to stay how it was. Were they allowed to buy new pieces? I don't know. I don't know if they were allowed to sort of add to the collection. Are you allowed to uh, open any of the doors? Oh, no, 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 no. They turned her living quarters into a door plus shop. Great jingle. One of the greats. Great jingle. So that's just a little bit of background on the woman who created the museum. But now we need to jump forward 66 <gasps> years. 1969? Nice. No. Oh. The last year I remember was 1903. She died in 1924. <laughs> I've, been, I've had a blackout since then. In fact, just my next sentence will probably actually cover the exact date and time I want you to picture. Fantastic. Yeah, just to make it real nice and clear. In It was the early hours of Sunday, March 18th, 1990. You guys wouldn't know what that was like back then. <laughs> I remember those days. March 1990? No, we wouldn't remember it. You were just twinkles in your mother's wombs. <laughs> just a little twinkle. The museum guards on duty that night were Rick Abarth, who was 23, and Randy Hestand, who was 25. Randy is one of the great American names. You know, Randy, there's a, an NFL player called Randy Gregory. First name Randy. Surname Gregory. Yeah. Amazing. This came across him this week. Randy Gregory. Yeah. That's incredible. Such a good name. Rick was a regular night watchman, but it was Randy's first time on night shift. A different guard was originally supposed to work, but Randy had taken the shift for him. Fairly last minute. Suspicious. Mm. Maybe. Nah. Policy was that one security guard stayed at the front desk while the other did patrols and they would take turns. And Rick took first patrol. While he was patrolling the building, fire alarms sounded in different rooms of the museum, but upon inspection he couldn't see any smoke or fire. He even went to the fire alarm control panel and it said there was smoke detected in multiple rooms, but he hadn't seen anything. So he figured it was a malfunction and he shut down that panel. He went back on patrol and before he completed his rounds, made a quick stop at the side entrance of the museum, briefly opening the side door and shutting it again. He didn't tell Randy he was doing this or why. Rick completed his, like, his laps and returned to the security desk around 1am, at which point Randy began his rounds. At 1.20am, Rick was sitting at security desk when the intercom buzzed. Two police officers were at the door of the building and they explained they were investigating a disturbance, which Rick didn't think much of because it was St Patrick's Day, a big weekend in, in Boston, and people had been out celebrating. He could see the officers on the CCTV and nothing seemed out of the ordinary, so he let them into the museum at 1.24. I don't know why it took four minutes of chatting back and forth, but that's when <laughs> they came in apparently. The two police officers asked Rick if there was anyone else working and he said Randy was doing a patrol and they asked him to radio Randy and ask him to come to the front desk. They needed to speak to both of them. 
While they were waiting, one of the officers said, you look familiar. I think we might have a warrant out for your arrest and asked Rick to step out from behind the desk. Rick complied and as soon as he stepped out from the desk, he was forced against a wall and placed in handcuffs. Oh, are they real cops? I'm like, who, who's the dodgy ones here? Yeah, who mm. are we trusting? When Randy arrived, he was also immediately handcuffed and it was only now that the police officers revealed they were not, in fact, officers of the law. Strippers. But they were here to rob the joint. Oh, <laughs> robbers. That was my next guess. <laughs> they were here to get naked, lube up. And rob the place. <laughs> it was a weird kind of fetish thing. And, hey, not to yuck your yum, but I prefer to do my thieving fully clothed. <laughs> the thieves blindfolded the security guards with duct tape and led the guards to the basement, handcuffing them to a pipe and a workbench. That's a brutal way to blindfold someone. They'll lose their eyebrows when that comes oh, off. Oh, my goodness. It's messed up. There's photos of them actually and Rick has duct tape not only over his eyes but also around his head from like chin to top of the head for some reason. Looks like an injured rugby player. Very kind of the photographer to take the photo before helping the tape off their face. (laughs) Hang on just a second, let me get a snap of this. Sorry, the light is just so perfect right now. Can I get this? (laughs) You are glowing. (laughs) The thief said to the security officers, hey, we've looked at your IDs in your wallet, we know where you live. Don't say anything to the authorities, and if you don't, you'll get an, a reward in about a year's time. <laughs> it's a weird offer. So when uh, everyone else comes in tomorrow and, like, there's seven Picassos missing, just say you don't know what they're talking about. Just say, what? <laughs> just gaslight them. Just be like, you guys sound crazy. <laughs> oh my God, we don't have any Spanish art here. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Are you guys okay? Do you know anything about art? Just say <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so a few things already seem a bit off. Firstly, before they'd revealed their true intentions, Rick had noticed that the shorter of the thieves appeared to be wearing a fake (laughs) moustache. Secondly, they didn't need any directions to get to the basement, so they already had a pretty good understanding of the layout of the museum. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) With the moustache, he's like, hang on, things don't add up here. Most (laughs) cops wouldn't put me in handcuffs and blindfold me and start robbing the place. (laughs) Something's up here. Something doesn't seem right. (laughs) You know what it's sounding like to me? An inside job. Mm. They, they knew where to get either that or they've done their research and they've been to the, yeah. the museum the day before or something. <laughs> yeah. They did the really tour. Really the joint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And somebody said, and that's stairs down to the basement. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and thirdly, by the time they got Rick and Randy down to the basement, it was 1.35 a.m., but infrared motion detectors didn't record them entering the first room they robbed until 1.48, leaving a 13-minute gap. What were they doing in that time? Some people were sort of like maybe they were just waiting to see if the police were coming. Who knows? Lubing up takes time, Jess. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Not for some, but <laughs> I have a lube shower installed in my house. Right. It's very easy. <laughs> it's very expensive, but... <laughs> you do not want to pull the wrong tap. <laughs> In the morning, getting ready for work. Oh, no. Oh, the loop, no. Tab. <laughs> I just washed my hair. I'll be slipping around for hours. <laughs> so the thieves entered the Dutch room and took two Rembrandt paintings, the Storm on the Sea of Galilee from 1633 and a lady and a gentleman in black from the same year. Both of these are very famous, particularly the Storm on the Sea of Galilee because it's Rembrandt's only seascape. So it's very well known. So some people kind of like, seems an odd one to steal because it's very famous. Like people would 
immediately be like, how do you have this right. if you were right. trying to sell it? or Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. It's like you go, you want to get the ones that are most valuable that you'll actually be able to sell. Yeah, if that's the intention. It's a bit, yeah. So the thieves threw the paintings on the ground, smashing the glass, and cut the paintings out of the frames with a blade, like oh. cutting the canvas. I know. Monsters. Blasphemy. From this room, they also removed a large self-portrait of Rembrandt's from its place on the wall, but ended up leaving it leaning against a cabinet. Investigators later theorised that they may have considered it too big to transport or the fact that it was painted on wood rather than canvas made it hard to conceal. You can't really, like, roll up <laughs> a giant piece of wood. Do you think there's a chance they looked at it and went, that is ugly. What was wow, he thinking? Wow, Rembrandt was ugly. No. Overrated. Leave that. Yeah. <laughs> They also took a small stamp-sized self-portrait sketch of Rembrandt's, which staff of the museum found to be a pretty baffling choice as well. They're sort of like you're in a room with all this amazing expensive art and you just take this little tiny sketch. Yeah, you just took this pocket-sized one that was easy to transport as a bonus Rembrandt. Weird. An odd choice. On the other side of the Dutch room they stole a Gover Flink's landscape with, uh, with obelisk from 1638 and the concert by uh, Vermeer. The final item they took from the Dutch room was an ancient Chinese chalice type thing, which again kind of baffled staff who in the doco I watched described as not being worth very much. Again, a bit of a pointless sort of theft. Like it feels a bit like they're just grabbing what they can. Not an inside job. (laughs) I've changed my mind. Okay. After the Dutch room, the thieves moved to the other end of the second floor to a room called the Short Gallery. From this room they took five Degas sketches and an eagle finial, which is like a decorative feature from the top of a flagpole. So just taken five sketches and a little eagle. Strangely, the only other piece that was stolen was an 1875 Manet called uh, Chez Tortoni, which was taken from the Blue Room located on the first floor of the building. And the reason this is strange is because the motion detectors didn't detect any motion in that room during the time the thieves were in the museum. Hmm. According to the motion detectors, the only person who entered that room that night was a few hours earlier when Rick Abarth was doing his oh, rounds. Oh, it's an inside job for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you said it all along. <laughs> Before leaving, the thieves checked on the security guards one last time. Sweet. Before stopping by the security director's office. And there they took the security tape and the printouts from the motion detector. Um, which was kind of pointless. The motion detection was still stored on a hard drive, but they've taken the security tape and they've taken the printouts. So I guess, like, you know, sure, we can still access the motion detector data, but it is a bit more tedious for us. So I guess you got us there. (laughs) The frame from the Manet was left in the security office and then the thieves moved the artwork out to their car on two trips and left at approximately 2.45 a.m. In total, the robbery lasted for 81 minutes. Which is a very long time. Yeah, they were getting comfortable there. Yeah, they were just browsing, helping themselves to tea and coffee from the cafeteria, which I assume <laughs> it has. I will, Jess, I probably should pull you up on this because people would be getting pretty annoyed some art buffs. It's not Manet, it's Monet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought I'd pull you up because I just know people be yelling at their iPods right now. <laughs> Why do you invite them to yell at you more? <laughs> I don't know. Like if anybody was going to say, um, it's Monet, they'd be saying it to me, you'd be left out of it, and now you're going to get people saying, actually, Matt, 
Monet and Manet are two different people. Well, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you have two artists with similar names like that? That's what are the true. chances of them both being super successful? Yeah. So I doubt that yeah. very much, Jess. Just if you can, I... just pronounce it properly from now on. Sorry. Sorry, I will. It's also pronounced Degas. Make sure we're um, directing any tweets to Matt. Thank you so much. <laughs> so they leave at 2.45 a.m., 81 minutes robbery. At approximately 7.30 the next morning, the next shift of security guards arrive to relieve the overnight team. And in the doco, I was watching um, one of the security guards, Karen San Gregory. Oh. Incredible. Uh, San Gregory. Um, was one of the security guards arriving to work that morning and she said um, that normally one or both of the overnight guards would be in the security office and would let them in. They'd sort of buzz, they'd let them in. But after buzzing and waiting, there was no response. And this happened for ages and she's like, this is odd. So she called the chief of security and told him they couldn't get into the building and he came down to the museum and led Karen and another security guard around to a back door, unlocked it, they get in. She said as soon as they got inside, they knew something was wrong. Security cameras had been moved, the office door was busted open and the office had been completely trashed. And there were two nude, lubed-up guys <laughs> slipping and sliding around. They're like, something's not quite right. <laughs> they had, they'd made a slip and slide. <laughs> I mean, they looked like they were having fun, but it's, you know. They turned the blue room into the lube room. <laughs> they didn't know where their colleagues were or if the offenders were still inside the building. That's like the scariest part. So the police were called. When police arrived, they started from the top floor, worked their way down, checking every room, eventually making it to the tunnels that were underneath the museum. They feared the worst for the guards, kind of assuming they would be discovering bodies. Yes. But to their relief and surprise, they found Rick and Randy tied up in the basement, shaken <sighs> obviously but otherwise fine. Happy to pose for a photograph. Yeah. <laughs> I think Rick saw, could sort of feel the flash and was like, can you just, can you just <laughs> cut me loose first, please? <laughs> just as like a mental image of it as well. So Rick, it was like 1990, Rick was a stoner guy who played in bands. He had really, really long, tight, curly hair. It was like. Um, halfway down, like uh, halfway down his torso, super long. So in this picture, you can see just his super long hair. He's he's duct taped across his eyes and all around his head, and he's still got like his security shirt is on over the top of a tie dye t shirt, <laughs> and the security shirt's like open, and he's got a bum bag on. <laughs> like he, <laughs> it was not what I was expecting of a security guard. Manager's yelling at him. I told you to do that bloody shirt up, mate. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I've had a rough night. <laughs> so naturally, investigations start immediately. In total, 13 works were stolen, but the eclectic mix of items had puzzled experts. While some of the paintings were valuable, the thieves passed other valuable works, even works from Michelangelo, and left them undisturbed, opting to take relatively valueless items like the chalice and the finial. So it was a bit, it was a bit puzzling. They never even entered the room on the third floor where Titan's The Rape of Europa hung, which was the mo- one of the most valuable paintings in the city. They didn't even go in that room. And they're like, these people don't know anything about art. So between their odd selection of pieces and the brutish way that they handled the artwork, investigators believed that the thieves were unlikely to be art experts themselves, but 
there wasn't a lot of evidence. Hey, they know what they like. Yes. True. It does feel like these critics are being very snobby and elitist, aren't they? They're, art critics, they, art experts. They're going, oh, <laughs> oh you took that. <laughs> I wouldn't have touched that one. <laughs> and then they're, <laughs> but they're also going, you took the really famous Rembrandt. I wouldn't have taken that. Which is it? Are you a, yeah. Is it wrong that we're taking the famous ones or the non-famous ones? Mm. Can't please them. No, you really can't. The museum itself had been pretty low on funds for a while and because of Isabella's strict will stating nothing could be permanently changed in the museum, it had been hard to increase the number of visitors, so funds were a little low. They weren't, they weren't super struggling, but apparently um, their insurance covered them for almost everything except theft, which feels like a bit of an oversight when you're insuring a museum. So because of the low funds and their lack of insurance, Sotheby's and Christie's provided the funds for the museum to post a reward of a million dollars for information that leads directly to the recovery of all of their items in good condition. Except the chalice. We don't give a shit about that, <laughs> Who apparently. Who cares? Whatever. <laughs> but I want that finial back. <laughs> apparently this was the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. A million bucks. Information. As the art could easily be transported across state lines, the case fell into the FBI jurisdiction. But there was very little evidence to go on. Rick Abarth was investigated due to some of his questionable and suspicious behaviour from that night, including randomly opening and shutting a door not long before the crime was committed. This is something he claimed to do quite regularly. He said it was to check that the door was locked. But in reviewing security tapes from previous shifts, that didn't seem to be true. I'd never seen him do that before. Yeah. One of the um, people interviewed in the doco was like, I went through so many tapes, never saw him do it, except like the night before. So it's like, what? Little sus. Yeah. In the doco, some people speculate that opening the door was a signal to the thieves that Rick was taking over the security desk and would be able to let them in shortly, but that is just speculation. No solid evidence was ever uncovered proving Rick's involvement and he'd already resigned from that role. Um, He said it's because it was getting in the way of him playing in his band. Um, So he'd already resigned before, like he'd put in his his two-week notice or something before this happened. Oh, no, he was two weeks from retirement. (laughs) (laughs) So who was responsible? Well, this is a question investigators are still asking today. Really? No. Yes, it's a mystery episode. Oh, it sounded so clear. I'm like, clearly he is, the security guard's in cahoots with the two cops. It's a mystery, baby. Whoa. Yeah. So the art never turned up? No. No shit, that real famous Rembrandt on the sea, his only seascape, still missing. Holy shit. That's wild. Yeah. There are some possibilities, suspects that the FBI um, have had. If the painting was being taken overseas, the strongest possibilities at the time was either Irish mob or Italian mob. Going to be mafia related. With Boston having a large Irish influence and Irish-American population, there was a theory that the art was stolen to hand off to the IRA, who would in turn use that to buy weapons, which... One person uh, who was like the director of art theft and stuff from Scotland Yard was like, yeah, that's happened before. We've busted, you know, people stealing art 
and weapons. And then there was a guy from the IRA interview and he was like, nah, never, that's never happened. So hard to say, hard to say. Selling pieces to buy pieces. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most powerful crime bosses in Boston at the time was Whitey Bulger. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> that is a fantastic name. Incredible name. He was the head of the Winter Hill Gang. He claimed to have had nothing to do with the heist. And, in fact, when he heard about it, he sent out a couple of his guys to find out who did do it because the heist had taken place on his turf. So he wanted to be recognised and paid tribute. <laughs> He's like, who's out here doing crime on my turf? Okay, this is where I do crime. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. I want at least the Vermeer. All right. You think you could just do crime anywhere? Really funny. FBI agent Thomas McShane investigated and felt that Bulger's strong ties with the Boston police could explain how the thieves had acquired legitimate police uniforms or perhaps that real police officers had uh, were arranged to do the heist. Bulger also had ties to the IRA and you might remember how while Rick was doing rounds, the fire alarm was going off. Remember that? A bit odd? Yes. Well, McShane identified the bogus tripping of the fire alarm ahead of the heist, a calling card of the IRA. That was something the IRA used to do. Ah. So. IRA, okay, the fire alarm bandits. Yes. That calling card. You've got to have a calling card. Yeah, you must. But McShane's investigation didn't produce enough evidence and no arrests were made, although some do believe that Bulger gave the artwork to the IRA and that the pieces are most likely in Ireland somewhere. Really? It's so funny to have a calling card. Going, yeah. hey, just by the way, I did this crime. Yeah, just so you know. I'll never admit it. This was me. But I did it. <laughs> In terms of Italian mafia, the Molino gang and associates of the gang were heavily suspected to have been involved as well. In fact, eight years earlier, undercover FBI agents had busted a plan to rob the museum by a gangster named Louis Royce. Royce, however, was in prison at the time of the 1990 mm -hmm. theft but he'd shared his plan with others and believed that another gangster by the name of Stephen Rossetti may have ordered the robbery or shared it with someone else. This guy, Louis Royce, cased the joint like eight years earlier. He'd set up this whole plan and these undercover agents were like um, working undercover, obviously, but they were doing it because of they suspected him of a different art theft. And then in, in being undercover, they caught him planning to rob this place. And then a few years later it gets robbed and they're like, hmm, but he was in prison. So oh, it wasn't him. Because he told someone the plan. Like, How annoyed would you be? You'd be like, that's my plan. My plan. <laughs> God damn, he's such a dick, Stephen. <laughs> you promised you wouldn't use my it. my plan. I Copyright. Wanted rob, I wanted to rob that museum. Oh, uh, that's a dog act. Guys, we need to all agree that we should always communicate with one another when we want to, like if there's somewhere that you want to rob, you just let me know. And I won't do it. All oh, right, so he says sort of shotgun places. I call dibs. Absolutely, yes. I call dibs on NG NGV. Damn it. Oh, fuck, that's so good. It's, they've already been done though. So mm. if you want to be a bit of a copycat thief, okay. Yeah, all right. I want to do it though as an inside job. So first I've got, oh. got to get a job there. Yeah. As what? First step in my plan. I don't know, maybe as a, as a painter. I'll paint some artworks okay. for him. Oh, okay. Do they do like home brand art there? Uh, at the National Gallery of Victoria? Yeah. I don't think they do home brand. Huh. I'll just get, you know, if you go to a bar and you say, I'll just have the house red, it's a little cheaper. Yeah. No labelling, no big, you know, no big Monet or whatever splashed across it or day gas. It's just 
What I, I could do those ones. I could just do the house paintings. The house I'll be art. A, I'll be a house painter. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> I never knew what I never knew what a house painter did. Hmm. There you go. There you go. God, we learned so much on this. Another associate of the Molino gang was David Turner, who the FBI believed may have been one of the thieves. Evidence indicated that he went to Florida to pick up a cocaine order just days before the heist. And credit card records suggest he remained there through the night of the robbery, but some investigators believe this may have been Turner's attempt at creating an alibi. That is such a fun <laughs> alibi. No, no, I couldn't have done that crime. I was buying coke. I was buying <laughs> Across coke. Across state lines. Check, check my credit card. Look how much coke I was buying. It's also just sort of that, it's like that confirmation bias thing of like, I reckon it was this guy. No, he was in Florida. Well, that's what he wants us <laughs> yeah. to think. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? All alibis are lies. <laughs> we don't believe any alibis anymore. Nah, you can't. I like the idea that he bought the Coke with a credit card. Just to yeah. honestly check my receipts. Who's got cash? They got one of those little square things you beep on. Yeah, you got to have those. So they reckon it could have been David Turner, even though he was in Florida. The FBI thinks that the other thief was his friend and another Molino associate, George Reisfelder. He died in July of 1991, so the next year, and no clues were found in his apartment or the homes of friends and relatives, but his siblings recall a painting similar to Shea Tortoni in his bedroom. Investigators believe he looks similar to the slimmer man in police sketches. But that's, again, all they have and George is dead. So no way to really follow up on that one too much. Right. So Randy, is anyone suspecting Randy and uh, Rich? They were a little sus on Rick because he was the one who let them in. And he's the one that checked the door. Yeah, opened the door. And he was the only one who was in the room where um, that that other painting was taken. I mean, that sounds like that's something. Yeah. But not no concrete evidence, huh. nothing that you could charge him on. And Randy wasn't uh, there. Was I mean, obviously he would have been questioned, but there was never really any any thought that Randy was involved. And the fact that they they you know they gave up info like that the robbers told them to wait a year and they'll get cash and stuff like that mm. seems like the kind of things that you wouldn't do if you're in on it. But maybe that's what they want you to think. Yeah, it's all very complex, isn't it? In nine- Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Whether it's your first ever website or your business is expanding, growing, getting bigger, it all means the same thing. Squarespace (laughs) makes it easy to create a beautiful website and engage with your audience. And if you're worried about like, well, I don't know how to write stuff for a website and make myself look good, well, you can get help with the written content for your website with Squarespace AI. You can generate instant personalized results that highlight your brand identity you can explain what your site's about choose your tone enter what you need and bang you got some short and long form text baby so squarespace ai makes it easy to go live stand out and succeed online i'm so glad you had that bit because i thought it was pronounced squarespace ai (laughs) 
Anyway, sell exclusive content on your site by adding a paywall to sell memberships or courses or sell files your customers can download. I don't know if I'm hitting all these words as <laughs> intended, like PDFs, musics, or ebooks. I would love to buy Matt's ebook. I'd like to buy Matt's course, and you you can do that. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own online course. Be more like Matt. Oh, one hundred and one. Wow. Yeah. How many? One, does it go to one hundred and two? It goes all the way to one hundred and two. <laughs> you can customize everything with next generation editing technology. You can create engaging lessons your audience will love, and then set the price. You can charge a one time fee or sell subscriptions. Matt, how much is it to be more like Matt one hundred and one? Oh, three mil. Wow. Wow. Like per month or. Yeah, USD. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Head to squarespace.com slash do go on for a free trial and to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com slash do go on. 1994, the museum director, Anne Hawley, received an anonymous letter from someone who claimed they were willing to negotiate a return of the artwork. The writer claimed to be a third party that said they did not know the identity of the thieves. But they said that the artwork was being held in a non-common law country under climate-controlled conditions, so that's good. They were taking care of the art. (laughs) They wanted immunity for themselves and all others involved and $2.6 million for the return of the artwork. I think I know what country they're in. South Africa. They're asking for diplomatic immunity. It's the only place. (laughs) I think that's clear as day for me. South uh, Africa, do they have common law there? Or is theirs more rare? I don't know what a non-common law country is. Do they have climate-controlled conditions? Yes. Mm. I think we might have cracked this one wide open. Yeah, I think we've got it. <laughs> the FBI, what a pack of idiots. If the museum was interested in negotiating, they should print a coded message in the Boston Globe. To establish credence, the writer conveyed information only known by the museum and FBI at the time. They, they reckoned, like, this is a pretty good lead. So they printed the coded message um, the 1st of May, 94, and Hawley received a second letter a few days later in which the writer acknowledged the museum was interested in negotiating but had become fearful of what they perceived was a massive investigation by federal and state authorities to determine their identity. The writer explained they needed time to evaluate their options but Hawley never heard from them again. Oh, are they still thinking about their options? <laughs> Still thinking about it. They're very Sometimes careful. you've got to really consider things for a long time. I don't want to push this, you guys, but we would love an answer. <laughs> yeah. We'd love to just, we would love to collaborate with you. We love your vibe. Let's let's chat. <laughs> so we're just going through like some potential options here, some of the things that have been investigated. In 97, the Boston Herald reporter Tom Mashberg was taken by a source whose name was William Youngworth who was an antiques dealer who had, like, worked with some of the big crime bosses. He took him to a Brooklyn warehouse where he um, showed him what they believed to be the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the very uh, famous seascape. They, um, they took tests of a paint chip, of the paint chips, which were really only able to demonstrate that it dated to that similar era. It, didn't, it couldn't confirm that it was that particular painting. I think I read somewhere else that it was like a different kind of oil. So it, they're like, no, it's that not it. a different kind of boat. There was, was a speedboat ah, yes. with David Hasselhoff standing on it. <laughs> Some people <laughs> Like we're not sure this is it. It's beautiful. But it's, it is art. <laughs> I can confirm that. 
I'll give you a million dollars for it, but it's not the one I'm looking for. <laughs> but I must have it. <laughs> There's a few empty spots there in the Dutch room, and I think Hasselhoff might be a Dutch of Dutch extraction, perhaps. Well, that's interesting that you say there were um, empty spots in the Dutch room. They have literally just left blank frames oh. on the wall. Oh, what? is that because of the they're not allowed to change anything? Uh, it's, well, that might be a factor, but it's also kind of like in hope that they'll be returned. It's become quite a famous high, so I, I don't, yeah. you'd almost go to check out the spots they were in, you know what I mean? It's like the heist yeah, has yeah, become yeah, exactly. the, the art. Yeah. Oh, that's you get some, beautiful. <laughs> you get some crime tourism. <laughs> so, yeah, there was this this source, Youngworth, also said um, that Boston criminal Bobby Donati and another guy called David Horton had masterminded the theft. See what I mean? Like I've told you a few different options here and there's no overlap in who the people are. It's like different names every time. It's like, I reckon it was this person. No, nah, I'm sure it was this person. Um, so it's a it's a real mess. But so um, he believed that it was Bobby Donati and David Horton. Donati working as one of the fake police officers in the museum and Horton driving the van, um, like the getaway car. Mashberg wrote about his experience in the Boston Herald. Um, he left out Youngworth's identity and the painting's location, but the FBI... <laughs> were able to uh, figure out the location of the warehouse several months later and they raided it, but there was nothing there. So these claims are disputed. And again, Bobby Donati was murdered in 1991, so impossible to question him about it now uh, or, you know, or, or after the fact. Yeah. Dead men tell no tales. Well, with a lot of them being gangsters and working in various crime gangs, um, a lot of them died right. because they would murder each other. This one's my personal favourite. Two other suspects were Robert Garante and Robert Gentile, two Roberts. Uh, Garante died in uh, from cancer in 2004, but his widow um, told the FBI, his widow Elaine told the FBI in 2010 that her husband had previously owned some of the paintings she claimed that when her husband got sick with cancer in the early 2000s, he gave the paintings to Gentile for safekeeping. Gentile, no surprise, denies this, claiming he knows nothing of the whereabouts and has never had the paintings in his possession. Uh, he was charged with drug charges in 2012, most likely as a way to pressure him to giving up information regarding the heist. Um, this it's sort of like, you know, oh, we can drop that sentence if you tell us about... Where the paintings are, which he denied, denied, denied. He agreed to a polygraph test, which indicated he was lying when he denied any knowledge of the theft Ooh. or location of the artwork. He demanded a retest, during which he said um, Elaine gave uh, Elaine had once shown him the missing Rembrandt self-portrait, to which the polygraph machine indicated he was telling the truth. This um, sounds like something. So yeah. he said that Elaine has showed him this, the self-portrait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But wasn't that the one that wasn't even stolen? Yes. <laughs> so he is a fucking Probably liar. The, the stamp size one, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, this is a little one, pocket size. Mm. The FBI searched his house a few days later and found a secret ditch beneath a false floor in the backyard shed, <laughs> but it was empty. I've never heard of a secret ditch before. Secret ditch you got to take the, the secret floor. ditch. <laughs> Check the secret, secret ditches. Ditch so Most of the ditches I know are, you know, pretty well known. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Gentile's son said the ditch had flooded a few years earlier and that his father had been really upset about whatever had been stored there. Oh, no. All of this is very circumstantial, but it's like, oh, it feels, it feels right. In the basement, they found a copy of the Boston Herald from March 1990 reporting the theft, along with a piece of paper indicating what each piece might sell for on the black market. (laughs) I mean, they could have just been a true crime aficionado. Yeah, well, he explained that the list um, was written up by a criminal trying to broker returns of the work um, from Garante and was talking to Gentile as an intermediary. So he's kind of blaming the other guy who died several years earlier, so... He's kind of throwing his friend under the bus. When asked about what could have been in the ditch, Gentile could not recall but believed it could have been small motors. Very sad about my motors. So, again, no conclusive evidence was found to indicate his involvement. Small motors or small monets? (laughs) (laughs) Worth it, even on delay. So, yeah, no conclusive evidence is found. And while he did serve 30 months on drug charges, he was not charged with anything to do with the heist. But in an update that has happened between me finishing writing this report and right now at the time of recording. <gasps> Sold? Stop the presses. No. They found a secret second ditch. <laughs> News outlets reported that Robert Gentile passed away today. No. At the time of recording, he passed away today. What? Yeah. And a lot of the sort of newspaper articles or the um, stuff written about it is that he's sort of like the last person who might have known where they were. He was in his 80s by now. But they believe that he, yeah, he, he knew where they were or he at some stage along the line he knew where they were. Um. He passed away today. Uh, I love a deathbed confession. Come on. Yeah. You're going to die. Get it off your chest. That's what I'm going to tell you, Matt, that, hey, I actually don't think you're so bad. (laughs) (laughs) What 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 a time to find out. Yeah. Right as I'm dead. So in a very unsatisfying end, as the mysteries always are, we still don't know exactly who stole the artwork. Interestingly... The statute of limitations expired in 1995, only five what? years later. So the thieves and anyone who participated in the theft can't be prosecuted. They, I did read they could face some charges, but it wouldn't be the, they wouldn't throw the whole book at them. They can't. Statute of limitations passed. Wow. I love that how the statute of limitations are basically go, giving you like an, an end game. You've clocked yeah. it. You won this. You won this crime. I guess now you can sell that artwork... Uh, really openly. Yeah. So why would why wouldn't <laughs> I don't they know? Then? Yeah. If they sell it anywhere legitimate, it's immediately going to set off alarm bells because everybody in the art community knows yeah. these works are stolen. So it's got to be through like black market channels. It's yeah. It's really. But if messy. they can't get in trouble for it, I guess that would be a new crime, though, wouldn't it? Selling, selling stolen. stolen. Yeah. Good. And they can still face some charges, and it would probably be stuff like that. Um, but yeah, they it wouldn't be the whole. Thing, I suppose. It's, but is there yeah. anything that stops them putting it up like in their rumpus room? No. Nah. Just if it clashes with the couch, mm. I suppose. <laughs> You're under That's arrest. That's the only thing stopping you <laughs> from fashion police. <laughs> Style police. But, yeah, with so many suspects of being gang members, like, we, like I was saying before, a lot of them are dead, so it's pretty hard to question them. In 1990, the FBI estimated the value of the hall at $200 million. This was raised to about $500 million by 2000. 
Some what? art dealers now would say more like $600 million. It was considered the largest museum heist in terms of value until it was surpassed by the Dresden Green Vault burglary of 2019. Ooh, that sounds like a future episode. Yeah, I was going to say. And thank you for the follow-up episode. How <laughs> they cop so much shit? Oh, you took all this junk? It's $600 million worth. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's expensive junk. And just a little tidbit here as well, Vermeer's The Concert is thought to be the most valuable work currently unrecovered with a value estimated at $250 million. So it's doing a lot of the heavy lifting, The Concert, but, yeah, it's still unrecovered. We do not know where the art is. Gosh, I hope it still exists. I hope it wasn't flooded in the ditch or, like, burnt, like out of someone panicking or something like that. Yeah. Really hope it turns up somewhere. I'd love for us to get to an update on it. Um, as so often happens, hopefully we've sent out some good energy and yes. now it's going to be found. Because, like, the idea that it lasted, like, over 300 years and then someone just, like, you know, put it under their bed and it got, you know, stood on or crushed or yeah. something, it's like, oh, God, or someone accidentally threw it out. Oh. Yeah, exactly. God, it's upsetting. They turn up sometime so, yeah. in, like, an op shop. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. I didn't quite know where to... Um, where to drop that it was a mystery episode. But I felt like, I felt like, you know, where I did it was, was okay, you know? Yeah, I think it was okay. Just want you to be proud of me. But, yeah, that is my very unsatisfying end to yet another mystery episode, um, the, the biggest heist in the world of the Isabella Amazing. Stewart Gardner Museum. Love it. I still think it was an inside job. I agree, Matt. I think that Rembrandt yeah. did it. Whoa. Yeah, just to get his painting back. He was like, fuck, I sold this a few hundred years ago and it's actually my favourite. I've only ever painted one ship before. Yeah. I want it back in the family. Ships are actually really hard. People say hands are hard. Try painting a ship. Yeah, oh, my God. That's like like 50 hands. Yeah. And there's like ocean around it. Oh, my God. It took me ages. I've looked it up. It's 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 an absolute beaut. Yeah. There are still beautiful high-def photos of it. Oh. And I'm sure it's looking real nice on somebody's mantelpiece. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, unless you know, you could yeah. walk in and just be like, oh, nice print yeah, of something. Yeah, it's a print, wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know people who can afford actual art. Certainly not a Rembrandt. <laughs> I don't want to know people who can afford actual art. Well, thanks so much for that report, Jess. That does bring us to everyone's favourite section of the show where we thank a bunch of our great supporters uh, from patreon.com slash Pod. Or do go on pod.com. If you go along there, you can uh, sign up and and, uh, support us at a bunch of different levels. Different levels give you different rewards. There's uh, multiple bonus episodes each month. There's shout-outs. There's uh, a newsletter occasionally. There's uh, a Facebook group. There's a lot of stuff you can get involved with. And uh, the first thing we like to do is for the people on the Sydney Scheinberg level, they get to offer us a fact, a quote, or a question uh, I'll read those out and, uh, yeah, they also get to give themselves a title. I'll read out three each week or four even. How many is it? Well. Is it three or is it let's four? Let's see how we go. I mean, it's been four every other week, but maybe it's a three kind of week. I'm not sure. <laughs> so first up uh, we have from uh, James Edwards, who's given himself the title of Chief Trombone Soloist for When People <laughs> Fall Over. Oh, fantastic. 
Is that the wah, 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 wah? That's what I was thinking, yeah. That's great. Uh, James Edwards got, got one of the great laughs in the business. Is it? I don't think that says much about my stand-up that I can remember a single laugher from a gig. <laughs> <laughs> no, James has a, a noticeable laugh. Never forget your only Did laugh. Did a show in London a few years ago and his laugh was fantastic. Uh, James has got a question for us and here it is. Hey, guys, it's been so long uh, since I did my first and only fat quota question, mainly because I forget until every Wednesday when I go, fuck, I forgot again. (laughs) Anyway, I was wondering, following the huge international success of Matt's critically acclaimed and presumably multiple nominated investigative journalism series, Beer Pioneers, what topic would you like to research and present in a documentary series? And he's answered his own question. Do you want me to read his answer first or do you have something there? Yeah. I'll read his out. James says, uh, living in London, I'm always fascinated by stories about the London underground and would love to deep dive into that for a series, either that or the dark web. But I think that might be too scary. Anyway, (laughs) I hope you're all well and thanks for everything you do to keep us smiling during such strange times. Cheers, James. Thank you, James. Hmm. I think, yeah, so I, I did a show which was in part uh, about going around to craft breweries around Melbourne and Tasmania, but also following loosely following the trail of uh, an escaped convict, um, William Buckley. Well, I was going to do an episode about him. Yeah, I reckon that would be great. It's a great story. Yeah, it is a really interesting story, so I should um, I should do that sometime. So uh, I think what I would do is Series 2 of The Beer Pioneer, which is planned for next year, so I'm excited to do that once I'm allowed to leave the house. That would be nice. What would I like to – I mean, Dolly Parton, obviously, Um, but I feel like it's been done. Imagine, yeah, your pilgrimage to Dollywood. Oh, my God, I want to go to Dollywood so bad. Um, That's a tough one, Dave. What do you reckon? Uh, where I, I live, there's a there's near, nearby in the same suburb. There's this beautiful old gardens that's surrounded by these old gold rush sort of uh, era mansions that are very old, all in similar style, and it just goes in a, a U shape around the gardens. And I'm like, I'd love to know the history of what, who's lived here, what's it like. You know, it's been over 150 years of these ext- extremely beautiful homes. And mm. I don't know. I when I walk through there, I think about that, and I've looked it up online, and there's not that much. So maybe I could be the guy that cracks that wide open. Yeah. And even if I'm the only one who's interested, at least I'd find it interesting. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd be mm. interested in that, assuming there was anything to, to be found. <laughs> That's, it's the thing, like, they might not be, but like maybe there is. Yeah, that does sound And then on the, on the show we could like tour in the different houses and obviously some of them are, are uh, older and haven't been looked after and some of them are like absolutely brand making new like grand design style on the inside. So that would be kind of cool too. That's great. Yeah, that's the only thing I could think of that that I've been wondering. I guess I haven't left my 5K zone in a couple of months, so that's why yeah. I'm thinking about that. Yeah, I actually uh, I would be doing a documentary on uh, international travel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to join you as your sidekick for that if that's okay. Uh, I'm doing a doco on a European summer. What's it all about? Let's go check it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just really curious to find out what's it like to lie on a tropical beach. Mm. <laughs> I'm doing a report on gelato and I must sample all of it. That's a great idea. Uh, thank you so much for that question, James. Uh, the next one comes from Claire Norris, who's given herself this, the title of statistician 
not accountant, for Do Go On. And uh, Claire's offered us a fact, and this is it. Uh, micromorts measure risk of death from a given activity. One micromort is a one in a million chance of death. So skydiving is eight micromorts per jump. Climbing Everest is 40,000. And running a Whoa. marathon is seven per run. Uh, lastly, sharks and kangaroos pose similar risks at about 0.1 micromort per year. That's fun. I love that. A marathon is one micromort less than skydiving? Yeah, how's interesting is that? I mean, a marathon wow. is, I guess that's... I guess it's heart attacks. And it'd be people who aren't quite prepared for it, I suppose. I've got yeah. some friends who are looking at doing one uh, next year. I'm like, not for me. Start with like a 10K and then you'll realise how much that sucks and you'll go, oh, God, I... I thought I was going to do a marathon, like an idiot. That's the thing. That's what they did. They 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 did ten k ones. They've done half marathons, and now they're training for. I, I'm topping out. I'm topping out at ten k's. I'm trying to do a ten k run each week at the moment, and they suck yeah. every time. <laughs> All of it, nonstop. It sucks. I feel really good afterwards, but yeah, but a half marathon or a full marathon, I just I don't know. Just to me, it seems like punishing yourself but i imagine the high at the end of it would be pretty amazing as well yeah yeah uh thanks a lot for that claire i love that micro morts i'm going to try and remember that's awesome that. uh the next one comes from dominic stevenson who's given himself the title of chief underling of that <laughs> dominic has asked a question which is what's the most downloaded do go on episode ever oh that's a tough one without notice it's tricky because we've been across it a few different um, hosts over the years. I think mm. we we're up to three or four Acast who we're with now, and uh, they they've counted the downloads differently across that time, and that's changed a bit. And I I'm not sure. My guess would be, Dave. Do you have any idea? You're the stats man. I think uh, just going from Acast because, like you say, there's each different one. It reset each time, so you go to Acast and something that's had. Thousands of downloads goes back to zero on their on their count. So I would say I think it's something maybe the Unabomber is. Oh yeah. So it's normally yeah, oh, yeah. just like quite well known um, topics are often the ones that go big. I reckon Shackleton's Endurance was big on one of our previous hosts. I'll double check that right now on Acast just so we know. Do you want thinking music? Please, you're so good at it. No 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 no. <laughs> that was on the recent <laughs> recent bonus episode we did about the $64,000 question. Popped up this in my head. I think it it only just left my head. <laughs> he was as happy as can be. I'm just going to send you voice memos over the next few days doing that. <laughs> okay, I've got I've got the answer here. Yeah. It's uh this is so over the last appro- appro- uh, approximate 2 years. Uh, the number one is the Unabomber. It is the Unabomber. Interesting. Mm. And number two, which really surprises me, uh, is Roman Emperor Caligula. Ah, there and you his, go. And his crazy antics. There you go. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a Dave report. Yeah, it was. Apparently people like the Roman stuff or they like the crazy antics. Probably that. Probably that. Mm. Oh, there you go. Uh, thanks for that question, Dominic. I reckon maybe some people will find that one interesting. And finally from Dan Marshall. Uh, he's a first-timer for the Fat Quota question section. 
and uh, Dan has given himself the title of the 563,296th way to die in the West. (laughs) And he's offered a fact. And here is Dan's fact. Modern body armor was created by an irate pizza guy named Richard Davis who would test it on himself. Davis got his hands (laughs) on some of this new material called Kevlar and fashioned some of it together into a body armor. He called it the second chance vest and created it with the intentions of putting it in police hands. To try and sell this vest to the police, he would demonstrate it by shooting himself point blank in the chest with a revolver. While it hurt like hell, he was overall fine and his pitch was so effective it later became standard among all police in the US. Can you imagine being in the room for that pitch? <laughs> I would shit my <laughs> yeah. pants. Oh, that's amazing. And I'd be like, later I'd be like, look, bold, love the example, but you are fucking insane. <laughs> oh, man. That's like he's seconds away from joining my favourite wikipedia.org page, a uh, list of inventors killed by their own invention. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose technically it's the gun that killed him, so maybe not. It's that's his belief amazing. in his invention that killed him. Yeah, that's wow. right. Wow. Never believe in anything you do. That's my lesson. It make me think a little bit of the guy who had the uh, parachute suit and jumped off the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. Yeah. Mate, just so determined to try and make their mark. They've got to try something. We made a mark, all right. Uh, so that's the end of our <laughs> fat quota questions section for this week. Uh, thank you to all those who got involved. If you want to um, throw one in for us, you can get involved at the Sydney Scheinberg level. The next thing we like to do is shout out to a few of our other great supporters. Normally Jess comes up with a little game here based on the topic. Yeah. So we, we, we read out the names, we thank them, and we normally, you know, we might give them a... If it was an episode about pets, for instance, we'd give them all a pet. I'm thinking of what um, uh, building or institution they uh, rob. Great. Love it. All right. Now, if I may kick this off, um, Dave, do you know what an O with a line through it, how that's pronounced? I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. I'm going to pronounce it like an O. Uh, From Copenhagen in Denmark, I'd love to thank Johan Otto Hove. Oh, my God. What a name. Great name. And uh, I think Johan would have robbed the MCG Museum. Yeah. Little sporting museum there at the MCG. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where they've got like the few baggy greens. Yeah, maybe Kathy Freeman's, one of her running suits, those sort of things. Uh, Probably some bales from her big cricket test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such things like that. Such things. Such things. (laughs) Probably a few footy. Guernseys. This makes sense now having looked it up, but uh, Copenhagen, that is uh, the Danish way of saying Copenhagen. That oh, makes sense. That does go. make sense, yes. Yeah, there you go. I still don't get that we don't let people call their own places yeah. whatever they want. Yeah. Oh, it's like, um, you can call it that. I think we've got our own name for it. <laughs> You'll be Germany, okay. Which land's yeah. cute, but not for us. Very strange. Very strange. Uh, thank you, Johan. I'd also love to thank from Oklahoma City in Oklahoma in the United States, Jack Vesper. Ah, Jack Vesper, of course, are the mastermind behind the heist of the NGV National Gallery of Victorian <laughs> gift shop. 
Yeah. Robbed it blind. 70, 75 magnets gone. Novelty pens. Yeah, they got good magnets, pens, um, books, sometimes T-shirts, a lot of, lot of bullshitty stuff, a <laughs> lot of bullshitty stuff, <laughs> yeah. which like they put a high price point on but they're not worth that <laughs> that's right they're like oh they, they stole 15 grand of stuff but really on you know they're only going to get about five five six dollars for it a lot yeah. of on it eBay. is just mark up you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you but jack don't who the real thieves are bloody <laughs> are those gift shops <laughs> uh and finally for me i would love to thank from address unknown only can assume uh from the home of the mole people uh, there's a few people uh, around this time who signed up who didn't give us their uh, address. Uh, we don't get the address if people opt out of having a reward sent to them like the Christmas card and that sort of stuff. So for some reason, at around this point, 18 months ago, people were not wanting us to send them things. Um, so from address unknown, surname unknown, I'd love to thank Esther. Esther, of course, known for... Um, it was a, a a number of heists, actually. It was a heist ring of 7-Elevens. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Took the slushy machine and everything. Gone. Oh, no. Yeah, wiped the place out. I think Esther's genius move was going, look, well, I know they're open from 7 till 11. <laughs> I'm going to rob them at 11.30. Mm-hmm. And she got there, you know, with the jackhammer ready to sort of <laughs> jackhammer through the, the window. And just the door opened as she did it. So mm. it was it was actually a lot easier than she'd planned. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Esther. Thank you, Esther. I would love to thank from Indianapolis in Indiana. <laughs> oh, so close to Gary, Indiana. So close. I would love to thank Chancellor Duval. Chancellor oh. Duval, what a name. Oh, my goodness. And Chancellor, of course, would have stolen, uh, he would have, Thieved from Jay Leno's car collection. Ooh. Oh, no. Which I believe is pretty extensive. Yeah, he's got quite a few cars. Which, honestly, you can only use one at a time, can't you? Yeah. That's right. But at least there's a bit of variety. What about Jerry Seinfeld? He's just got like 100 Porsches. Yeah. It's all the same thing, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm so, like, I suppose I've got lots of mugs. They're all a bit different, aren't they? <laughs> That's right. So who am I to judge Jay Leno yeah. when he's... Airport worth of cars. <laughs> um, I would also love to thank from Seattle in Washington. Well, I think, uh, oh, you haven't said their name. <laughs> love to thank. <laughs> Hang on, you can say your thing in just one sec. Uh, I would love to thank Derek Kozak. Derek Kozak, what a oh, name. this one? <laughs> oh, no, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Matt had something ready to go. I think Derek <laughs> Kosak uh, went in and did a, a raid on KACL. I fucking knew it. Fraser Crane's radio station. <laughs> I <laughs> it was going to be Fraser related. <laughs> oh, man, I had no idea. Maybe I hear the booze calling to sell it. I actually paused after saying Seattle because I thought you might start singing. All <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, my mind was, was drifting off into uh, the Fraserverse. <laughs> Which, of course, also included uh, Cheers and Wings. Yeah. There's a lot. Some people refer to it as the cheers verse, but not me. <laughs> that, that'd be ridiculous. Thank you so much, Derek. 
And finally, for me, I would love to thank uh, another person. Uh, we don't know their location, so we can only assume deep within the fortress of the moles. I'd love to thank Jess. Oh, Jess, Ooh. of course, known for absolutely clearing out Ripley's Believe It or Not. Ooh. Stole that giant statue of Robert Wadlow, and it's that is a difficult thing to hide. God, Jess, are you secretly supporting us? I'm just worried about you guys, <laughs> um, so I just want to make sure that you're looked after financially. Appreciate that. So yeah, thanks yeah, so yeah. much. I'm uh, I'm on the four thousand dollars a day level. Wow. Yeah, we're millionaires I am from you. Bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> Help me. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank three beautiful souls now, if I could. Now, this one also assumed deep within the fortress of the moles, surname unknown, but a big shout-out. You know who you are, and that is Heather. Heather. Great work, Heather. We appreciate you so much. Heather is uh, responsible for a heist of the Coles Deli. Oh, my goodness. What are you talking, meats, sliced meats? Strasbourg. Yeah. Chicken loaf. Yep. Kalamata <laughs> olives. All of it. Wow. A bit of a uh, Jarlsberg or Jarlsberg. No, I, want, I once asked that, at so. the Coles Deli. I said, I said, uh, could I get um, a wad of Jarlsberg? And I said, and I sort of lent in. I said, or is it Jarlsberg? I never know. And they <laughs> they lent in as well. I said, I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. That's a nice moment of human connection. Yeah. They lent it and said, I don't care. <laughs> Maybe some semi-sun-dried tomatoes. Oh, man, I want to be involved in that haul. Yeah. yeah. Does it also count the seafood? Yes. Wow. That's a smelly robbery. Yeah. That is the stinkiest part of a supermarket. That was, I think, maybe the only department in, in the supermarket I never worked in. Hmm. I even did one day in cleaning the meat room. What is a meat room? That's where they cut the meat up and everything. Oh, and it's just okay. like the all the cutting equipment and everything, there's just like meat jammed in everywhere and I have to give it a deep clean. <laughs> it's meat jammed oh. in. <laughs> they asked me at the so... last minute, I was meant to be doing trolleys or pushing trolleys or something and they're like, hey, our meat cleaner is called in sick, can you do it? Our meat cleaner. <laughs> oh. I, I, remember, I was like, oh, I prefer not to. I'm not a big meat fan. And the boss is like, Oh, I'd really appreciate it. I'm like, they're all right. <laughs> it wasn't oh. too bad, really. You're sort of in the oh. room by yourself, just spraying bits of old pig and stuff out of the way. And they're all hanging up around you. It's kind of fun. The big big pig heads and stuff. The whole carcasses are in there. Start training for a boxing match. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely. I'm sure there was a montage while I was in there. What are we talking about again? We're thanking our great supporters. So thanks to Heather. A uh, big thank you now. Also, location unknown. The Fortress of Moles, we obviously have a big appeal and about 18 months ago had, had, like extended that appeal to the Fortress of the Moles. We appreciate that. Mm. Thanks for listening deep within there. I would like to thank Ashley B. What about Ashley B? is known for the great blockbuster video heist. Oh. And this is just seconds before all the stores closed, so they were happy to get rid of their stock. <laughs> so it was a victimless crime, really. I bought a bunch of uh, ex-rentals when they were closing some of those down at one point. Um, great. Some, a lot of great stuff there. But, I, yeah, I reckon uh, they've probably gone in there. They've, they've taken a lot of the overnights, you know, the oh, ones yeah. that might be a, a 6 or $8 stuff. overnight rental, and they're like, not for me. This one's free. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Overnight, how about every night? Guns waving around. Everyone, no sudden <laughs> movements. And like, yeah, yeah, take them, fine. Yeah, great. Don't play smart with me. <laughs> I'm not going to fall for your mind games. <laughs> so, Anya Ashley B, you've got a lifetime supply of movies from around 2011 and before. So, uh, good on you. And finally, I'd like to thank uh, from unknown location, Mark Hutchinson. Thank you, Big Mark. Kevin's Keyboard Emporium. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he loves to tippity-tap on the old keyboards. What are we talking, yeah. computers or, or piano keyboards here? Bit of both. Oh, wow. got, got a couple of Casios. Yeah. Was I looking around the room and saw a keyboard? Yeah. Not only pianos. And uh, computer keyboards, also Mm. boards for hanging your keys on. Kev's got it all. (laughs) And key tars. (laughs) He's got them. And uh, ties that look like keyboards. And also the the big uh, floor keyboards that they used in big. Got them all. Thank you so much, uh, Mark. Also, Ashley, Heather, Jess, Derek, Chancellor, Esther, Jack and Johan. We thank you one and all for your great support. The last thing we like to do is thank a few of our long-term supporters. These uh, next people are being welcomed into the Triptych Club. Triptych, we say. I think technically it's meant to be Triptych in an early episode, maybe the first episode. Dave said it wrong and we've said it wrong ever since. (laughs) Uh, Could not give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Uh, So... Um, I think, Dave, there's five inductees today into the Triptych, Triptych Club. Uh, normally how this works is I'll read out the name. Dave hypes you up because you've, you've been a supporter for the show for three straight years at the shout-out level or above. So this is your moment. You're coming into the club, VIPs only. I'll read out your name. Dave will hype you up. Then Jess uh Gives Dave a little bit of uh, a tickle as well, a little bit of self-esteem boost because, you know, it's draining to be a hype man. And uh, Jess, you normally have a little cocktail as people are coming through. What's the cocktail you got sorted for tonight? It is a... Dave, you book a band normally. Who have you got playing in the Triptych Club tonight? I mean, we were actually talking about them off air, but then they ended up being... uh, Absolutely essential. That is the Australian uh, metal band Super Heist. Yes. D.W. Norton and the gang. That's right. And, Bob, <laughs> uh, you've got obviously the cocktail I think you were talking about before was the Rembrandt and it was yes. uh, it was like a look like waves in the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was famous, as, as far as I'm aware, famous for his seascapes. That's right, absolutely famous for them. I think you painted and it quite is, a few. Um, for, for our new inductees, um, just for this particular day, there is a, it's a black tie event um, because we're fancy hoity-toity mm. types and we, we're going to discuss art. It's going to be very boring. <laughs> <laughs> so come on in if you want to put up with that. <laughs> so five inductees this week. Dave, you ready to go? Absolutely. Let me hype. All Come right. on, Davo. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Firstly, from <laughs> um, I'm going to say MA weeks in America. Is that Maryland? That's going to be my guess. A Massachusetts? I don't know. Maryland, because I think alphabetically that comes before Massachusetts. I'm afraid. I've looked it up. It is Massachusetts. Oh, Dave, you got me again. So sorry. 
from Merrimack in Massachusetts, which is where Boston is as well, Jesse Russell. Ooh, let me rustle up a good time. All right. <laughs> yes, so easy. Thank you, Jesse. Yes. From Bonnie Bridge in Great Britain, it's Claire Hazard. Ooh, there's a hazard on the dance floor. Claire yes. Hazard. Yes. Hazard, maybe. She's tearing it up. <laughs> from Goolwa in South Australia, it's Heidi Ottlewell. Ooh, this night started out. Bad, Otter bad, but now it's Otter well. <laughs> From Essex in Great Britain, it's Jack Jefford. Ooh, a sexy SXE. <laughs> <laughs> it works if you see it written down. <laughs> I've printed a t shirt for you, Jack. You can wear that if you want. A sexy. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, from New Glasgow in Nova Scotia, I think, in Canada, it's Elizabeth and Fraser Green. Oh, New Glasgow on in. (laughs) Elizabeth and Fraser, the dangerous razor. Welcome in, Jesse, Claire, Heidi, Jack, Elizabeth and Fraser. I hope you make yourselves at home and enjoy the music of Super Heist. Uh, but that's all we've got time for, really. I mean, it's not all we've got time for. This show has no time limit, but that's all we've got for you, I guess, this week. Any final words, Jess? Butts. Dave, boot this baby home. Uh, well, basically, all I've got left to say is if you want to get in contact with us, we've got a website. Check it out. Do go on pod. Dot com and there's links to our Patreon. You can support us on there. You can uh, email us, dogoonpod at gmail.com or link to buy some merchandise or link to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube, most of which are at dogoonpod. Yes. Uh, if you want, you can suggest topics uh, via that website as well. There's a link there or in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, anyone can do that. Uh, but we'll be back next week for the start <gasps> of Blocktoberfest. Oh. We cannot wait. I'm pumped. Ready to block and roll, right? <laughs> exactly. We always say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's block and roll, baby. Let's block and roll. So thank you so much for listening. Stop block and roll. The biggest topics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Start next week. Thank you so much for listening. And until then, I'll say thank you and goodbye. Bye.